this building was supposed to last through the millennium. This building is supposed to stand the test of time. And there were talks early on about building it out of adobe. They could have used other stones. Sandstone was available locally or limestone. But this granite is as permanent as the hills themselves. And so to take something like that out of the hill and then build really the flagship building for the church out of it, I think makes a really big statement. Hello and welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. And in today's episode, we will be talking about chapter 43 of Saints Volume 2, A Greater Necessity for Union. Today, we're joined by a curator from the Church History Department, Emily Ott. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. It's good to be here. Emily, is there anything you can tell us about what you do or what you're currently working on? My job is primarily architectural history for the church. So a big part of my job right now actually is the Salt Lake Temple. For the next four years, I will be almost living in that building. How cool is that? Yeah, that's amazing. Yes, we are very fortunate to have you with us for this episode because we're talking about the Salt Lake Temple, and you are one of our experts in the church history department. Can you just help us understand why has it taken so long for the temple to be built And where are we at as we begin chapter 43? So the temple took so long because it's hard to get material from the quarry. Sully Temple Quarry is not that far from the temple site, but considering that they have to, for the first 20 years at least, take material and put it in a wagon and bring it to the site means that you're not able to haul a lot of material. So you take a building with walls that are nine feet thick, and it's going to take decades. It took 35 years to do the exterior of the building. And that means hauling each stone individually, hand carving each stone, 35 years from groundbreaking until the roof went on that building. And why granite? Why did Brigham want it to be from granite versus some other materials that may have been available locally? This building was supposed to last through the millennium. This building is supposed to stand the test of time. And there were talks early on about building it out of adobe. Brigham Young had this idea that an adobe building would become as impermeable as stone over time. Gratefully, wiser heads prevailed, and Brigham was convinced that stone was the right material. They could have used other stones. Sandstone was available locally or limestone. But this granite is as permanent as the hills themselves. And so to take something like that out of the hill and then build really the flagship building for the church out of it, I think makes a really big statement for Brigham. So in taking 40 years to build, what has adjusted as far as their plans go from when they started to now that they're facing the completion? What kinds of things have changed? The world has changed from the 1850s until the 1880s. So in the 1850s, they're using hand tools. And in those decades, the train comes to Utah, so suddenly they can get material much, much faster. And in those decades, steel becomes a common building material. Electricity comes into vogue. The elevator is invented. Steam heating, all of these things that we think of as standard in buildings were invented in the decades that the temple was under construction. So when the roof went on that building, church leaders and newly minted architect, a man named Joseph Don Carlos Young, realized that the building that had been designed by Truman Angel would have been old-fashioned and obsolete and quaint in this new and modern world. And so they basically scrapped the 1850s plans for the interiors and started over. 
So, Emily, this is one of my favorite things, and I'm glad you're going to be able to help us out here. I've heard these stories, and I think maybe many people have well-meaning stories that there were in the plans from the very beginning holes that went through the walls that somehow ended up being used for electrical conduit. There were shafts in the plans that ended up being used after the elevator was invented. Can you help set us on the right track? What really happened there? Yeah, so when the roof went on the building in 1888, the interior of that building was empty. There were no floors. There were no walls. There was no plaster. It was an empty shell. They were using the interior of the building to hoist the materials to build the roof. That's how empty the inside of this building was. And so in 1888, they completely redesigned the floor plan of the building. And that's when they started putting the floors in. And like I said, in those intervening years, the elevator was invented. And so the floor plan, as designed by Joseph Don Carlos Young in 1888, included elevators and included electrical conduit and included steam radiator pipes because they had an empty building to work with. The church is trying to show off the latest and greatest inventions available to builders in the late 19th century. And so they weren't using empty things that Brigham Young had envisioned. They designed that building for all of these great things. So the original architectural plans for the temple are in the church history library. And if you look closely, there's notations for elevators. And the Church History Library also has the purchasing receipt from the Otis Elevator Company when we purchased those elevators in the 1880s. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. And it sounds expensive, <laughs> especially since they have nothing in the interior. And at this point, we're coming close on the completion date, the actual dedication. So what are they doing for finances? How is this being funded? Yeah, and that's the other big change that happens because in the 1860s and 70s and early 1880s, this is coming out of tithing funds and people donating. You don't need that same kind of financial push. So in the 1880s, the church starts this massive fundraising campaign because they have to buy the interior of this building. They have to buy the plaster. They have to buy the lumber. They have to buy the windows and the paint and the furniture. They can't just make that out of material they find in Red Butte Canyon anymore. So church leaders send people out and start fundraising. One thing I love in this chapter is the story of Joseph Dean, who is working on the temple, and he's drawing a salary, but it's not a great salary. And then he is asked to donate basically a month's wages to the building. Yeah, after already giving $25, which mm -hmm. is a quarter of his wages— I mean, I felt bad for him. I felt like, oh my gosh, Joseph, how do you do this when you're trying to raise a family, give back $100 again? His wife had just had a baby, and so he's trying to pay the hospital funds too. It's like his money was already accounted for. You know, he owed the money that he was earning. And I think there's not just Joseph Dean, but other people too, that they, because this temple meant everything, they are willing to give everything. Joseph Dean, when he started working on the temple, needed work, and that job was an answer to his prayers. And so to give everything back, well, of course he would, because the temple is the pinnacle. You know, this is the place that our family is going to come together, not only ourselves, but future generations. I think they knew even then that if they dedicate this temple, that in a hundred years, their great, great whatever grandchildren will be coming to that temple. And if they held anything back then, what would be left for their grandchildren? And I love in talking about Joseph Dean. So he does basically find that money to donate. 
he was forgiven the interest on a, on a debt that he owed, and it was $100. And so he, I love the word he used. He said, I consider the Lord has refunded me. And so I just think that's cool that sometimes it is really monetary funding that we do find when we're faithful in paying tithing. And then, you know, other times it's in other ways. But for him at this moment when he's trying to come up with 100 extra dollars to donate, that happens for him. It's amazing. And I think, too, so when I go into the temple now, I wish I could see that, oh, here's Joseph Dean's $100. Like the price tags of everything. I would love to see that. But so I walk through that building, and I can see the impact of those small donations. $100 really isn't going to go far. But you combine his $100 with someone else's $100, and eventually you have that temple. So when I go in there now, I can see the sacrifices of those people and every little bit of paint and architecture and everything in that building talks about the consecration that these people lived to make that building happen. Emily, in the book, there's a meeting that's held in the top floor, I guess, of the temple. Can you tell us a little bit about how the construction worked? Was it done in phases and did they dedicate phases like they did in St. George where they dedicated the basement first and then they kind of moved on? How did this work? In 1892, when they did the capstone, the building was kind of languishing. Certain trades had come in, so the windows were all in the building, the floors were all in, and they were working slowly. But the building was intended to be finished all at one time. So the plasterers would be plastering the fifth floor, that assembly room, and then they would go down and put the plaster on another room, and they would kind of rotate through the building. The carpenters were all kind of doing the same thing, the plumbers, the electricians, much like a, a building would be done today. The idea was that on April 6, 1893, the building would be finished. And so there's this mad scramble to get this building done. And for all intents and purposes, it is they are working 18-hour shifts. And it's amazing to me because paint only dries so quickly and mm. plaster only cures right. so quickly, yet they were able to work sometimes double shifts to get this building done. Well, and Ben, you were mentioning there's a meeting in the upper floors of the temple. Emily, can you tell us more about this meeting where it kind of ended up being a fundraiser almost? Yeah, so I think it's one thing for church leaders to say we need church members to raise some money to finish the temple. And it's entirely another thing for church leaders to say, we take this so seriously, we'll pay for it ourselves. And so the church leadership is having this meeting on the upper floor of the temple to figure out how we're going to raise this money. And they really, they put their money where their mouth was. They raised, I think it said $50,000 just right. in that meeting right. among church leaders. And these are probably some of the wealthiest members of the church that in a very short amount of time raise a lot of money. But I, I don't think their donations ended there. There are certain elements of the building that these same leaders came back and donated even more money to have for completing the beautiful interior of that structure. So visitors to Temple Square for many, many years would see in the South Visitor Center this cool diorama this model of the temple. And it's kind of a cutaway so we can see all of the different rooms, the different levels of the temple. I've taken non-members there, friends who wanted to see what's like inside the temple. I love that. It's now on display over at the conference center while many of the renovations are happening. Think of that model in your mind. Now, Emily, what's the same now that they built then. Is the basic layout of the Salt Lake Temple remained the same all these years? Yes, the interior of the Salt Lake Temple architecturally is really unchanged. Almost all of the walls are in the same places. The floor levels are in the same places. The baptismal font is the same font that was dedicated in 1893. 
the altars, all of those things are very original. What looks different in that model versus how it looked in 1893 is really paint color. Mm. And some of those interior kind of details that change, you know, carpets and furniture and lighting. What would the colors have looked like then? Now I'm used to it being kind of a white... With some pink and blue. What, what would it have looked like back then? So the temple that you see today is largely a product of the 1960s. So in the 1960s, they painted the whole temple white or various shades of pastels. They installed air conditioning and those kinds of things. And they had to lower some of the ceilings for that to happen. The temple in the 1890s was a much richer and more vibrant space. So the 1890s, they loved the look of faux graining basically painting wood to look like other woods kind or like marble. Like we see in the tabernacle, yes. the columns in the tabernacle we might yeah. be so familiar in, with. Yeah, so the Salt Lake Temple interiors, um, some of the rooms were grained to look like cherry and mahogany and oak and bird's eye maple and much richer colors. The celestial room had marbling on some of the bottoms of the columns the paint colors were rich and vibrant. The Grand Hall was painted green, a nice kind of Victorian green. There were lots of ochre, kind of yellow colors on the walls. The artwork was much grander than it is today. When you say artwork, are you meaning the like the paintings hanging on the walls or are you talking about the murals? I'm talking about the paintings that were hanging on the walls. By 1911, there were portraits of some of the female Relief Society presidents on the walls in the Salt Lake Temple. Bathsheba Smith, Eliza R. Snow, Emmeline B. Wells were hanging on the walls of the Salt Lake Temple. Now we have a lot more landscapes. The murals have evolved considerably over the years from the 1890s. I could give you a whole hour lecture on just the murals in the Salt Lake Temple, but we don't have time for that. The original murals were in the garden room and the world room, and they were painted in the 1890s by young men who had been called as missionaries to go to Paris to study art. I can imagine that would be a great mission assignment, wouldn't it be? <laughs> that was something I loved learning about in the book because I had never heard about that before. They'd been called and set apart to go on these missions to be artists and to be trained. It was incredible. Yeah, so these young men, and they were native Utahns, members of the church, and they had some good art skills. They were fine artists. And they go to Paris and they study at the Academy Julian as their main training. And they come back and they are hired to paint the murals in the Salt Lake Temple. And of course, they want to charge full price for their mural work because these are newly minted artists and they need to make a name for themselves. And so they submit their first proposal to the first presidency. And the first presidency comes back and says, no, we paid for you to go to Paris. We are not paying that. And so there was quite a bit of haggling back and forth. Wow. And eventually those artists painted the Salt Lake Temple murals. But it wasn't just these young artists. They're, the leader of their group was an artist named Dan Wegeland, who had been kind of the godfather in some ways of art in early Utah. He had probably painted some of the murals in the Manti Temple and in the Logan Temple. And he kind of shepherded these young artists through the process of painting these massive murals. But the murals have changed. There were some problems with the plaster in the 1920s, so the World Room mural was repainted by the same artist. They brought him back. The garden room has been touched up more times than I can count. And the creation room was finally painted in about 1915. So even within the temple itself, there is an evolution of art and furnishings and things that we're trying to understand better as we prepare for the upcoming project. So furnishings, let's go there next. What were the furnishings like then? What's been replaced? What's similar? 
So the furniture in the temple in the 1890s was a very much a middle-class kind of thing. The furnishings committee went over to the Dinwoodies Furniture Company. It was a furniture store in Salt Lake, and they went through the design catalogs and said, I want 18 chairs in style A, and I want them in this fabric. And they just picked furniture suites that they liked. Almost all of the furniture is U.S. made. We have found some of those same furniture pieces. Some are still in the temple and some are in um, the Church History Museum's holdings. And some of that furniture came from factories in Michigan or Philadelphia or other places. The Quorum of the Twelve went over to Dinwoodies and picked out the furniture for their meeting rooms themselves. So this was really kind of a team effort to furnish the inside of this building. The furniture would have been stained woods mostly with rich upholstery on them, either leather or velvets or brocades or other kinds of typical Victorian upholstery. So we know that the temple took basically 40 years to build. Do we know other totals, like how many total workers actually worked on the temple throughout this time and the total cost of everything? Number of workers is hard because, so the first 35 years when the church is funding this building itself and acting as its own project superintendent, we keep really good lists of who worked on the temple. So to the point of, if you went to the church history library, you could find out who carved which stone on the temple. Wow. Our invoicing is really good for those first 35 years. When the roof went on the building in 1888, the five years for interior construction, the model changed. The church hired a general contractor, a local firm named Taylor, Romney, and Armstrong out of Salt Lake. And Taylor, Romney, and Armstrong didn't keep any records. So we don't know the number of workers on the inside of the building. But we also don't know the full cost because, well, how do you rate the cost of a quarry that we own? And how do you rate the cost of volunteer labor? I've heard, you know, millions of dollars were spent, but it's hard to really quantify a good number for the total construction of the building because it was such a volunteer-led project. So, Emily, you're very involved in the project to renovate the temple. We've seen some drawings and things that have been released by the church communication department. What can we expect when the renovation is complete or over the next however many years, three or four years, what's this project going to be like? I don't think even any of us that work on this project understand how big of a project this is going to be. To make this project happen, we have to demolish a lot of structures on Temple Square, the South Visitor Center. A lot of structures in the 1960s are going away. This is going to be a really busy, hectic construction site for a very long time. The exterior of the building, though, should not look any different. We're going to clean it a little bit, do a little touch-up, make sure that the battlements and all of the exterior elements will survive an earthquake. But other than that, the exterior should look just the way it does now. It's just going to be a mess to get around Temple Square for the next few years. What are you most excited about? I'm most really excited that the church is being so careful with this building. This Salt Lake Temple is really the icon of the church. The saints gather to this temple in a way that they don't to any other temple. And so the time and the effort and the money that is being spent, I think, is a great testament to how significant and important this building is. This is the home of the church, and we're taking every possible care to make sure that the building, as envisioned by Brigham and Joseph Don Carlos Young and Wilfred Woodruff and all those other great 19th century leaders, is here in 100 years regardless of the earthquake happens or not. So the Salt Lake Temple, how does it compare to other buildings? 
I mean, even outside of the territory in the United States. What is it like? It's hard to describe how the Salt Lake Temple compares because as a building type, it is so different. People look at the temple and they think it should be a cathedral, a huge vaulted interior space, one large room with a couple little side chapels. And so as the cathedral goes, it's not that much bigger than other cathedrals, but it's not a cathedral. So it doesn't quite fit the church category, but it doesn't quite fit a, let's see, what another building about that size would be state capitol building or some other massive public building. But it's that size, but it doesn't fit that either. There's not really a good comparison for the Salt Lake Temple. It's a public building, yes, It's a religious building like a cathedral, but at the end, it's a house of the Lord. And so it's supposed to have this kind of homey feel to it, while at the same time being a grand public religious space. So it's hard to describe which building it's closest to, but it's the house of the Lord on the grandest scale that anybody could ever imagine. And as the temple's nearing completion, the saints are preparing for the dedication. And let's listen to a clip from the book describing this preparation that's going into this dedication. To help all the saints reconcile themselves to God and each other, the First Presidency called for a special church-wide fast to take place twelve days before the dedication. Before entering into the temple to present ourselves before the Lord in solemn assembly, they wrote in a letter to all church members, we shall divest ourselves of every harsh and unkind feeling against each other. So this invitation to reconcile with anybody that we might be having problems with leads us to someone that we've met several times in Saints, and it's Susie Young Gates. Can you tell us how this invitation affects her and her family? This is actually one of my favorite kind of ideas that in this era of focus on the temple, when we're supposed to be consecrating ourselves, and we're supposed to be focused on community and building Zion, It's the same time when we are having massive conflict. So you have Sousa, who has had a poor relationship even with her children, with Leah, who had gone to live with her father when Sousa and Alma divorced. And Sousa and Leah have to reconcile, and they have to forgive each other for decades of unkind thoughts and ill will among their parents. And you find it everywhere else. As, you know, you find it in politics. You find it in a family that this temple became an opportunity to forgive grudges and forgive offenses that might have been decades old or might have even been given in ignorance that they didn't know that they had hurt each other. So I love the story of Sousa and Leah because they both have to apologize for the things that they said to each other. And it becomes this really personal invitation from the prophet to forgive so they would be prepared for the temple. Let's listen to this episode as it plays out in Saints Volume 2 of these two letters that go back and forth between Leah Dunford, Susie's daughter, and Susie Younggates. Still, after the argument, Leah felt she needed to apologize. I humbly and truly repent and beg that you will forgive and forget, she wrote. As Susa read the letter, she was sorry her daughter was burdened with remorse. As soon as she could, She responded to Leah's letter. My dearest, darling girl, she wrote, know that I love you better every day. She in turn asked for Leah's forgiveness and promised to do better. I know I am far from perfect, she admitted. Perhaps the greatest sting of your words was for me and the fact that in a measure I deserved it. 
by prayer and a little effort on our part, we can learn to let these things alone, she wrote. Give me a kiss and bury it forever. I love that sentiment of, I probably deserved it, but let's bury this thing and move on. I love that you have these two women that are very strong-willed. Sousa is a force of nature, and you do not mess with Sousa. It's true. (laughs) And Leah is a force of nature, and you do not mess with them. I wonder if that's part of their young family trait coming out a little bit. And so you have these two very strong-willed women who both know that they're probably right. And it seems like they are. They're arguing about Leah's father, who he was abusive to Sousa when they were married, but now he's kind of reformed and he became a very loving father and husband. And so from Leah's perspective, it's like their perspectives are, they are both right. And these arguments we have about family, that letter could be written this week among Mm -hmm. two family members that are disagreeing. It's this really lovely personal thing about strong-willed people who recognize that they need some humility and they need a willingness to move on past something that probably should have been moved on past years and years before. Well, maybe when you go back to your committee that you're working on, you can remind them of this story and tell them that we think it would be great if we had a churchwide fast to all forgive each other in four years when the temple is rededicated, because we probably need it. Well, and we've actually talked about this even a little bit as a project team, because we are now making some really difficult decisions on the future of that temple. And we pray in our meetings to do the right thing. And we sit in these meetings, and you can imagine a room full of very strong-willed and opinionated professionals. Some of them have been doing this for decades. And we come out of that meeting reconciled and unified in it, even though at the beginning we were rather unhappy with each other. Well, that's awesome. And I think it's great that we have such committed and smart and capable people that are working on this project to preserve a legacy for the church and for all of us as members of the church. So, Emily, we just appreciate you so much for visiting with us today. And I have to tell our listeners, there's so much more in Chapter 43 we didn't really talk about today. One of my absolute favorite parts of the entire volume of Saints is a wonderful man by the name of Mahia. And when he meets his missionary so many years later, it's fantastic. If you haven't read it yet, you got to go listen or read that chapter. There's many, many other things in this chapter that will be fantastic, and we hope you'll listen to that as well. Be sure to visit saints.churchofjesuschrist.org for additional topics about the people and places and things that we talk about, and videos for supplements as you learn, and to read along with all the chapters. And we always welcome your feedback. Email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. Thank you to our listeners. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. 